From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Well, this is a story that is getting a lot of reaction, an absolutely tragic, heartbreaking case that is making its way through the court system. But we now know that undercover police that were investigating the murder of a young girl, a teenaged girl in B.C., disguised themselves as tea marketers. And they did that to secretly collect the DNA of about 150 Kurdish community members. And this has been revealed in court Recordings. I mentioned it briefly on the show yesterday that through those court recordings, we now know that homicide officers said the DNA was obtained at a 2018 Kurdish New Year celebration in Burnaby. That's where police handed out free tea samples in numbered cups. They then took those cups and they were later swabbed for DNA in a sting that helped them identify the brother of the suspect. And it was that identification that led to the arrest of the accused, Ibrahim Ali. Ibrahim Ali was convicted in December of first degree murder. The name of the girl has, is being protected by a publication ban. But we have been following this case through the courts. This evidence, though, is new and comes again from hours and hours of court recordings. And these all took place at pretrial hearings. So that's why we're only finding out about it now that the trial portion has concluded. But what is the reaction to this move by undercover police? Is it okay for police to do this kind of sting operation? Well, David Fraser is joining us now, a Canadian internet and privacy lawyer, also a partner with the firm McInnes Cooper. David Fraser, thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure, Jill. When you first heard about this or hear the details of the sting operation, police officers disguised as tea marketers, what goes through your mind? Well, I think when I tweeted about it yesterday, the first word was wow. And I was really surprised. And I suppose this is along the lines of a significant number of police tactics that, that are kind of close to the line where one can think, okay, well, we're dealing with the murder of a young child. It's a pretty significant investigation and and they probably didn't have any other leads. So they were reaching into their tool bag and actually invented a whole new tool by and large. But at the same time, collecting covertly and, and by deception, actively deceiving 147 members of Vancouver's Kurdish community in order to obtain DNA samples in a, a what can only be called a fishing expedition or, or setting out a dragnet information related to 147 people who were not even suspected of a crime, uh, that seems pretty extreme. If they wanted to get a DNA sample from a suspect, they would actually have to go to a judge and get authorization. And we don't know through the reporting yet, and the police are tight-lipped about it, which I'm not surprised but disappointed, in telling us whether or not they actually got a warrant, whether they went to a court and got approval from an independent judge to give them permission to collect DNA related to completely innocent persons. And I haven't heard anything about what happened with the rest of the DNA. That is it still in evidence? Is it still in a database? What have they destroyed it? And the DNA simply pointed them to a relative of the suspect. And so they, they, they didn't even get the DNA of the suspect initially. Uh, so all of a sudden that person who was innocent, but was simply related to the suspect, 
was under investigation, their entire family would be under investigation. So it's a pretty significant action and pretty heavy handed action by the by the police that I think citizens should be really concerned about. And to go through a few of the concerns that you raised there, and and so we don't know, and you're right, and I think the last we'd heard was it's not clear if a warrant was, if police tried to get a warrant, if they obtained a warrant, they're not initially, they're not responding uh, to those questions. And a lot of the evidence or parts of this, uh, parts of the hearing have been sealed. So it's not as though we can just go and access it. But do you think, it would have made a difference then if the police went and made their case saying, look, like you said, that this was a, a, a horrible crime. This this was the, the life of a, a teenage girl. We, we have no other way. This is what we think is our best bet to, to find a suspect. Would it be better, I guess, or, or reasonable if a judge did grant that? Well, and, uh, personally, I think it would be necessary that a judge make that determination. Somebody who's independent of the investigation needs to take into account all the various factors that are at play. The imperative of, of finding the person responsible for a horrible murder uh, and balancing that against the privacy interests of, of a, a, a minority community, uh, to put it bluntly. And it's, it shouldn't ever be up to the police to make that determination because they're always going to be biased in favor towards law enforcement and to use whatever techniques that they have that they <laughs> that are in their toolbox, as I said, or that they can invent in order to further their, their prosecution. That one of the key things, so we have a, a charter of rights and freedoms that says you, <laughs> the only time that, uh, that, that they can, that the police or other government agencies can intrude on your reasonable privacy interests is if they have a warrant from a judge, an independent arbiter who's going to determine the proper balancing of the equities in a case like that. And so if, if, if a warrant was not obtained, I would think that this is probably misconduct and, and outrageous. And any one of those 147 people may in fact have a legal claim related to being deceived and having their, their DNA taken from them fraudulently. And I, th- I think too, looking at, at what we know about this and, and the testif- uh, testimony from police saying that the sting was launched after DNA from the body, from the victim, was determined to have markers consistent with the Kurdish ethnic minority. And that's when investigators then zeroed in on that community, saying that there are, are several thousand people that would fit the, the descriptor in the Lower Mainland. And that's how they, uh, they came up with the plan to to swab uh, cups and as they uh, represented themselves as tea marketers. The fact that the, that they got a hit, that they, they found a match to a relative, it seems like that was, yes, it was an undercover sting, but it seems like it was also a stroke of luck. So does that also show that maybe they're doing this all the time? It just happened that in this case, it led to a trial. Well, I think that that's exactly a, a perfect reason why we need transparency into these sorts of things. So, so the police will come up with new investigative techniques and they'll try to get sealing orders and things like that in order to protect the effectiveness of those techniques. And very often those techniques are extremely intrusive. They tried to do the same for, uh, for cell site simulators that, that scoop up all the information related to all the cell phones in an area. For years, they tried to keep that secret. Then it was revealed that in fact, that this was, this was being done other techniques as well. And, and but I think your question also raises the important question related to ethnicity and, and racialized communities, that if this, if the DNA had shown up as being of European origin, they probably never would have done this because the, the, the pool of possible candidates would have been too large. But had it been somebody of Tamil origin or somebody uh, identified as Punjabi or West African? And so 
this seems to be a technique that would be much more targeted towards racialized minority communities. Um, and I think that has adds a whole other layer onto this uh, this whole thing. The, the details as well, too, it, and on the surface, uh, they, they look intrusive and, like you said, t- targeting a specific a specific group. But I know the the trial also heard about this being an incentive-based scenario that, again, the T-testers, they were offering the free samples. Uh, participants, I believe, were given gift cards as well, and that that if, if they elected to participate in the event, which was voluntary, uh, then they could elect to provide personal information, but they were never told that the entire thing was fake and that all of this was being done so that police could take those cups back and obtain their DNA. And like you said, they also were never told not only that this was happening, but what was going to happen to those DNA samples after the fact. I mean, even even if this was warranted or was approved by a judge, shouldn't people after the fact at least have a right to know that? Oh, absolutely. And, And frankly, I would think that the police, and maybe they did, but we have no idea, contacted those individuals to let them know that their information was scooped up in this in this dragnet uh, and to assure them that their information their DNA information has been has been destroyed but the reality they call it an, an incentive based program or or use the word incentive you know if it hadn't been if they hadn't been police it would have been fraud that that would be an offense under our criminal code under false pretenses to try to get something of value from another person now you might think you're a little milliliter of spit is probably not a value, but it is something that's that's tangible and obviously was valuable enough for the police to employ this particular tactic. Uh, do you think that there's also the the mindset that even uh, if there is a warrant or there's not, and again, we don't know in this case if there was, but because uh, this was a pretty high profile case and, and people followed along the court proceeding, that the fact that it did lead to an arrest and it led to a, a guilty verdict in this case, do people, is it is it a case of trying to justify the means justifying the end? Well, I think I'm, I'm, I'm quite concerned about that because generally in our legal system, the ends don't justify the means. That, that we always need to look at things through the lens of, of our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. There needs to be a balance. If you wanted to significantly reduce crime, you could require everybody to have surveillance cameras in their homes, dash cams on their cars, ankle monitor bracelets and things like that. Um, so that everybody, so it's kind of a panopticon of, of George Orwell proportions. You would significantly reduce crime or at least be able to uh, conclude police investigations very, very quickly. But we're not prepared to tolerate that in our free and democratic society. That, that we are a, a country of laws and we are a country that also has very important individual rights uh, that the police need to be balanced, that, that, that police conduct uh, needs to be within that continuum and needs to be managed in, in a way that's acceptable in our Canadian democracy. So what do you think people can do? And again, we know about this case. This came out during a court proceeding, even though there are still so many questions and things we don't know about it. But if this is happening, and you mentioned the the cell phone, the the Stinger devices and, and those that have been in the news before, it seems to it seems that we're finding out about these things after the fact. What can people do to to fight against this or to to make it so police agencies know that that this type of process is not okay. Well, I think we need to be advocating for much greater police accountability because the, the I think that's that's a critical part of this. My view also is that anytime that the police use a technique that's not widely known, 
they should not be going to a justice of the peace who in many cases doesn't even have to have a law degree or even have, have been a practicing lawyer, but they should have to go to a superior court judge. There should be an amicus appointed by the court. And so that's a friend of the court, so not the defendant or some, somebody else like that, but somebody who makes sure that, that the other side of the arguments, so that all the equities and all the interests can be properly balanced. And then these, these techniques need to be disclosed. Um, and, uh, and that's all part of uh, transparency and accountability. We've, we've imported that into our national security agencies in the last number of years, um, but we don't have a whole lot of meaningful civilian oversight of investigative activities of our police departments in Canada, coast to coast to coast. Well, it is certainly a case that is getting or a part of a case that is getting a lot of attention. David Fraser, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Joe. Thank you. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, more snow is in the forecast. We're going to talk about how cities are preparing for that a little bit later on in the show. And going off something we talked about yesterday, which was the number of burst pipes that we've already seen because of the extreme cold restoration companies that are extremely busy. We're actually going to check in with one of those companies in about 10 minutes from now. But joining me once again is Tony Giovantu, who is the executive director of the condominium homeowner. Owners Association of BC. Tony, great to have you back on the show. Uh, thanks, Jill. Always a pleasure. And here we are now in the thaw, right? <laughs> exactly. And I'm so glad you were able to come back on the show because we talked yesterday about pipes and the common areas, especially if people are in strata situations and the freezing of pipes and damage. But I understand now with the thaw and things getting a bit warmer, there are some other issues that are happening. Yeah, not everything shows up when it freezes. Oftentimes the apparent leak or the burst or the problem that's happening will show up when the thaw happens. And so we've had a few in the last 24 hours, a few buildings, apartment-style buildings with condos um, that have had some major floods. And it's because the thaw is now happening, the water is passing through, and it's, it's happening in areas like stairwells. Um, and in closets that where there might be pass-throughs on outside walls for a riser pipe or something or those types of things. And, you know, and I think the real message here for everybody is um, get around, make sure these areas are heated and check these areas routinely before you have any major issues. So you're seeing this or hearing about this in buildings where maybe the pipes burst, but because everything was frozen solid, there wasn't actual leaking taking place. And now that's what's kind of catching up. Exactly. That's exactly what's happened. The other thing that's occurred is, which is also now getting into suites, is that um, on high-rise and mid-rise buildings, we have rooftop drains. Uh, Those drains are generally internal in the buildings. It's really important that those drains, which often pass through outside walls, that you have these drains flushed and cleared on a regular basis because one building has not had their drains cleared, the drains have frozen solid, caused the line to actually crack, and now that where things are thawing out, one of the units is complaining about a wall that now has water coming through it. So, you know, drainage as well as water delivery for both hot and cold domestic, really critical. And Tony, we've talked about this in the past, especially with the the bigger buildings or with the multi-unit buildings. Uh, When you're talking about something like a drain from the ceiling or all of these pipes in the walls, this is going to be an expensive repair. Well, I think we'll see the repair in some of the buildings that were hit yesterday. The repairs will 
easily exceed $500,000, if not more. And we have multiple units that have been affected and people will be out of their homes for quite a while. And then, of course, the other issue is that the insurance deductibles for these buildings are probably going to skyrocket. So, you know, it has a long term effect on communities. And, you know, a lot of this has to do with our buildings. They're not resilient to extreme temperatures. And this is one of the challenges we have across Metro Vancouver and um, Capital Victoria Regional District area, because we've been building buildings for moderate climates. And this is the result of the extreme climates for sure. And how much of it is, do you think, what you just said, we're not building, I know in my neighbourhood as well, there are a lot of places that don't have insulation, certainly don't have anything near what was needed for the past cold snap that we just had. How much of it is the the way the buildings have been constructed, but also the maintenance, like you said, the making sure that the drains are being flushed and that things are being maintained? I think they're both contributing factors and certainly in the older buildings where we didn't have the same insulation and air tightness standards on the buildings to keep the climates internally stable. I think we're, we're going to see that impact. You know, the other thing we have, Jill, is we often have um, sprinkler systems that are going through the attics of townhouses, for example. Um, sometimes they're wet systems, sometimes they're dry systems. The difficulty is if they fail, it's too late by then and you'll have um, a rainfall in one or more of the units when that happens. Ventilation in those areas and heating may be necessary in extreme cold conditions. So, you know, it's worth, um, you know, you can't respond to it and deal with it right now because we're in the thick of it. But think about it as property owner. Think about things like where are my main shutoffs? If, uh, if we discover that a riser has failed, how quickly can we get that shutoff turned off? Um, and stop the damage to our building. People really scramble for these types of details. And um, we talked about that as well, knowing where the shutoff is, uh, being educated about that. Do you think there will be the opportunity, and maybe this is going to be a huge cost as well, but when you're talking about those townhouse, uh, the townhomes, uh, those types of buildings with the sprinkler systems, do you think there might be the opportunity to retrofit or insulate after the fact to make sure this doesn't happen again? Oh, absolutely. And and we've certainly seen buildings who've done this proactively. Um, uh, you know, we have a fair bit of experience in the province from Whistler and from Big White, um, where we've had a number of buildings with frozen pipes, you know, people who are have their homes in their, um, their condo buildings, and they're trying to save money, they're not going to be there during the week, they turn the heat off. And this is one of the things that happens. And so, you know, combination of management of the property, notify everybody that the heat has to stay on during the winter, notify everybody what the consequences are going to be, adopt some bylaws with respects to this. And then whenever you have any kind of exposed water delivery system or emergency system that could result in this failure, take a close look at whether heat trace tapes during that are triggered during cold temperatures um, or items such as additional insulation and air circulation with warm air can be helpful. Um, you know, everything we can do to mitigate the loss, it, you know, it's fine. If somebody said to me, oh, oh well, it's not that bad because we're insured, um, mm-hmm. you can't afford what's coming down the pipe on the insurance. That's the problem. Well, and it goes back to something we talked about years ago, doesn't it? When a lot of places were having difficulty even getting insurance. And I remember you talking about it then. These were places that didn't have claims. They didn't have a claims history. So imagine what this is going to be like going forward. 
I think buildings with large claims who have been faced with a scenario where they've either not been properly maintaining or upgrades were necessary and they didn't do them, and now you're faced with a major claim, we're going to see some properties that are really going to struggle to get insurance at any price. That certainly is going to happen. And Tony, one other note there as well, when we're talking about the things you mentioned off the top, now that we're seeing stairways flooding in many cases and uh, the the rooftop drains and that kind of thing, does it involve all of the insurance then, the strata insurance of the building as well as personal insurance, or is that something that's going to have to be worked out down the road? Well, it generally has to be worked out, but when you have a large claim like this, it's almost always going to be covered on the Stratus insurance policy. And then individuals who've remodeled or done upgrades to their units, their homeowner policies will kick in to cover those items. But these are pretty much going to be on the Strata Corporation's policies. It's probably going to have a pretty significant hit on insurance claims. All right. And more snow is in the forecast. Tony, thank you. As always, great to check in with you again. Thanks, Joanne. Stay warm and stay off the roads. Well, we have been talking about the numerous broken pipes, burst pipes due to the extreme cold. And we just got a bit of an update from Tony Giaventu with the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC. And he was talking about how just since yesterday, he's heard of several buildings where the pipes burst, but they weren't quite People weren't aware of that, but now that they're starting to thaw, stairwells being flooded, rooftops with drains that are clogged, causing a mess and a very expensive mess as well. We also know that restoration companies have been extremely busy. And joining me to talk a little bit more about that is Henry Blumenthal, Vice President of Performance Optimization. Henry, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for the invite, Jill. What has it been like for the lab, for you for the past few days? Well, the, the past few days, I would say, uh, you know, since the, the cold weather uh, started, it's been busier than usual, but we're used to this. I mean, uh, on-site restoration, you know, we've, we, we're used to managing catastrophe and large events. So this one, we call it a spur. It's quite busier than usual, but we're here. We're on the ground. We're helping uh, customers to, you know, to cope with, the, uh, with those losses. And what what are the the bulk of the calls? Is it for burst pipes, or, or what are yes. you responding to? Yeah, Vancouver area, BC. What's happening in 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 this part of the country uh, is uh, mostly uh, you know uh, frozen pipes. And as you said earlier, you know when the temperature gets a little uh, warmer, then you know, you realize there's there's water leaking. Some of, some of them. You know, uh, some of those pipes broke actually as as they uh, as they froze. So uh, this is uh, this is the bulk of the the volume we're getting. The good news is, you know, for most uh, most uh, insured individuals or companies, this is uh, typically a common peril that that that's covered. Which is good news, uh, but of course, dealing with deductibles and if your premiums are going up down the road can be a, a bit of a nightmare as well. We've been hearing from people too, and uh, about things that that you should know about the the shutoff valve. It's a, yes. if it's a sprinkler system that goes, or or a right. multi unit building. Does that happen a lot that you arrive somewhere and the homeowners or the tenants don't know where those things are? Yes, yes, Jill. Unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of time people realize. Uh, where the shut-up valve is in their crawl space after the loss. So it's always important before the, uh, the cold season to shut it down, to shut it off. 
um, they're usually located in the basement and crawl space. If you're not sure about this, have a professional look at it and and uh, and make sure you you shut it down when you don't need your outside uh, water. Um, that's the typical one. You know, the the outdoor faucet will freeze in a very very cold period. But it's good again, you know, as a preventive measure to make sure it's well insulated, to make sure that you know you're keeping a good heat in the house, uh, especially in cold weather that. You know, you close your garage door, you make sure you open doors. So, you know, uh, heat, temperature go all around your home. So, the, the, you know, to prevent the pipes from freezing. And I, I guess this would depend on the level of insulation and how your home is built. But is there a temperature that, that you would suggest that gives you your best shot at the pipes not freezing, especially those pipes that are on the outside walls? Correct. Usually, uh, you know, what, what we hear from professionals is you need to keep it 13 you know, 15 degrees Celsius at all times. In most cases, we heat our homes around 20, 22 degrees Celsius. So it's, you know, uh, sufficient. But as you said, sometimes there's a wind gust. Sometimes there's, you know, the way your house is built, you know, where it's located, uh, exposed to wind or not. And those those things unfortunately happen. Uh, but the good news is, you know, you have organizations like ours and, and an industry to support and, and help people when, when they have a, a water loss uh, from that. And Henry, talking about the, the turnoff as well, how big of a difference can it make if somebody knows the where the valve is? So when that happens, yes. if you're lucky enough that you're home and you get it shut off quickly, how big of a difference does that make? Well, it makes a big difference. So if you prevent the water loss, you know, from, from, from frozen pipe, you know, while we're, we're happy to help Canadians cope with those losses, it's always easier not to have a claim and not to have a water loss in your home. So, uh, you know, taking a couple of minutes to just shut your valve, you know, uh, uh, proactively before the cold season starts is always a good thing because, you know, uh, while we're good, we're nice, we, we help Canadians, it's always easier to protect your own place, avoid paying your deductible uh, in making some prevention and, and avoiding those uh, pipes from freezing. Mm, definitely. Uh, have you been able to keep up w- with the number of calls? Uh, I know in oh, my absolutely. neighborhood that I've, I've seen a lot of restoration companies. Uh, how has it been for you? Well, on site uh, is uh, we have our own service center. We have our own people uh, picking up calls. We don't use outside emergency services. So we have uh, all ends on deck. We have you know people on calls coast to coast. So we're able to use people from Quebec, Ontario, uh, the Atlantic provinces. So for us, as I said, busier period, but um, when people call us, they usually wait currently an average 20 seconds before they get an answer. So it's it's part of our DNA. Yeah, well, that is good to hear. Uh, do you think this could potentially lead to, uh, to the changes as well, as far as uh, better insulation, or, or do we need to be paying more attention to these colder temperatures and these kind of uh, extreme temperatures? We should. I think uh, this year's experience is telling us, you know, let, let's invest a few minutes, a few hours to make sure the insulation is good, um, to make sure we prevent from, you know, uh, from the you know, pipes fro- uh, freezing. So it's always good to, to have, uh, you know, a prevention look at things, you know, uh, make sure you, you uh, annually or, or on a frequent basis have your boiler service as well, because if you're, if you're out of heat, if your uh, furnace breaks down these days, it's, it's, it's bad news. So, you know, again, prevention is always better than anything else.
All right. Well, that is very good advice. Uh, Henry Blumenthal, thank you so much. I know uh, that you've been very, very busy these past few days, so I really appreciate you making the time for the show today. Thank you. My pleasure, Jill. Thanks for being with us so on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, BC Ferries has awarded a contract to build four new hybrid electric vessels. They are set to be ready to sail by 2027. The Ferry Corporation put out a statement earlier today saying the contract has gone to Netherlands-based Damon Shipyards Group, the same company that built its last six ferries in the same island class of double-ended hybrid ships. Joining me now to talk about this is BC Ferries President and CEO, Nicholas Jimenez. Thank you so much for taking some time today. Absolutely. Good afternoon. Uh, it's exciting to see and uh, look at what's happening with the new vessels coming on, uh, the hybrid electric vessels. How will they be different other than the fact that they are hybrid electric? Uh, what else will be different compared to the BC Ferries that people are used to? Well, th- we already have six of them in uh, in service. So people who travel and our sort of central northern Gulf Islands, they'll be very familiar with these vessels. They're very quiet, uh, very efficient. Uh, they're, great, they're great vessels. So uh, they're going to be a wonderful complement to the fleet, and we're really excited to get it going. The, the really big thing is, is the effect it's going to have on increasing capacity. As you know, there are certain parts of the province where population growth is such that we're just not being able to meet the demand at all times. So these vessels will really help provide relief to people who are seeing themselves travel back and forth on certain routes, uh, particularly, uh, again, in sort of the mid to North Island, Gulf Island routes. So will we, we see them, uh, when you say the Gulf Island, will we see them, uh, say, for any of the, the southern Gulf Islands or the routes uh, out of uh, Tawasin or, or Horseshoe Bay, or will they be servicing other routes? They're going to be servicing our smaller routes. So, for example, uh, the, the, the four new vessels we're going to build or we're going to deploy them to Nanaimo and Gabriola. So we've got a route there. Uh, it'll be uh, deployed as well to Campbell River and Quadra. And then the great news is we're going to be able to take the vessels currently servicing those routes and then redeploy those to places like Crofton and Vesuvius, so between Vancouver Island and, and Salt Spring, and then Quadra and Cortez, and then Denman, Denman and Hornby Island. So we're going to see significant increase in our ability to handle more capacity on those routes by redeploying the current vessels from um, from uh, the Gabriola and the Campbell River and Quadra Island route. So it's, it's really good news for the system. Uh, the new ships, uh, I understand the capacity will be uh, around 47 vehicles and up to 390 passengers and crew. How does that compare with the vehicles they'll be replacing? Um, they Well, they'll be larger in the sense that they'll be putting... Um, on, on some of the routes where we're redeploying the current vessels on those routes. Uh, so Crofton and Vesuvius, for example, uh, we're going to have two vessels service now, servicing that route. Uh, on Quadra Island to Cortez, uh, these new, uh, well, the ships that are going to be redeployed, uh, they're both bigger uh, and there'll be more of them there. So you're going to see a 70% increase in our capacity. Um, it's, it's, it's really finding where the system is stressed because population growth is, is such that we have you know, demand that we need to meet and then putting vessels to where that needs to be uh, for the system to run effectively. 
<laughs> and uh, I know that the price hasn't been put out or, or the statement that was put out earlier today didn't talk about the price of the ferries. But I think in the past, we've had uh, the BC Ferries Commissioner say that uh, the four ships would be uh, around $50 million or, or just nor- north of $50 million. And then uh, about $40 million when it uh, when you talk about the electrification of the ferry terminals. Does that do those numbers sound right? You know what, we're, we're really not going to be talking a lot about that. And I'll tell you why, though. It's, in as much as the commissioners made a ruling that she would prefer to keep this uh, confidential, the bigger issue for us is we're just about to launch into a procurement to replace a much larger suite of vessels, so our C-class. So that's six uh, vessels known as the Queen, the Queen of Surrey, Queen of Oak Bay, etc. Uh, and we're going to go into the market this year to procure new vessels. And what we don't want to do is put ourselves at risk at not getting the best price for those vessels. So that's why we're, we're holding back right now on those details, because uh, we really want to get the best deal both for the company, but also ultimately it goes to our customers because the cost of these vessels is reflected in the rates that people pay. So um, every dollar we save is one that we return right to customers in terms of fares. Uh, you mentioned the C-class vessels, the, the queen vessels that people will be very familiar with. Uh, one of those vessels was brought in yesterday to help uh, ease some of the, the congestion with the cancellations because the coastal celebration was was out of commission again. Uh, what do you say about that? I know when you came in uh, on the, to take on this role of president and CEO, uh, you talked about uh, making the ferry system more reliable, not having uh, the, these vessels uh, breaking down as much, but here we are just a day after a whole lot of cancellations because uh, the Coastal Celebration was once again out of commission. Well, I mean, there is a good news story here. One, uh, yeah, we had to cancel only a few routes because we very quickly were able to bring a a vessel that wasn't in service into service. So we're able to deploy that very quickly. And that's the advantage of having relief vessels on standby in the off season. So the other thing I'll, I'll say is that the team's we're really quick to respond. So at 3 a.m., the first call started. We were dispatching people over to the island to assess and make the repairs. Uh, ultimately, you know, these are very complicated vessels with hundreds of thousands of moving parts. Things are going to go wrong from time to time. So the issue isn't whether the ships run perfectly every single day. It's how quickly can you respond and get the ship back into service. And we did. By the end of the day, uh, quicker than we thought, the ship was back into service. And again, with the other relief vessel coming in earlier, we actually only lost one or two sailings. So, so unfortunate. And the system was really able to respond quickly to meet customer demand. I thought you lost uh, five sailings, the 515, 745, 1015, 1245, and 315. Right. Well, again, it gets a little bit complicated because we lost the sailings attached to that vessel. But in bringing in another ship, we were able to make up for the, vest, for, the, for the sailings that were taken out as a result of uh, the inspiration being out of service. So, so we were able to accommodate the traffic that needed to go um, with, with the sailing. Now, different times of the day, obviously, but, but certainly that relief vessel was a huge help to customers throughout the day. How do you see that working then? Because we have seen uh, more issues with the coastal vessels or the, 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 the different vessels of that class vessel. Um, I mean, it was at one point, it seemed like it was almost every long weekend there was, there was an issue. And it was the, the C-class, the queens that come in and, and pick up that slack. Do you see the, the procurement, the, the replacing of the, the C-class vessels 
I, I guess, having to be something where, where those vessels maybe are going to be more reliable? Well, absolutely. I mean, these, these have been workhorses for us for, for decades. As you know, these, some of them were put into to service back in the 60s and the 70s, right into the early 80s. So they're old ships. Uh, but they're they're really reliable, and they're they've done a great service to the province. And it's time for them to to be retired. Now, the advantage is new ships, obviously, is that we'll be able to um, they'll be hopefully bigger, uh, they'll be cleaner. Uh, we would we're looking to hybrid electric. We haven't made that decision yet, but that's certainly something we're looking at. Um, and our hope is that we'll be able to bring more vessels into play. So we have six in the current C class category. Uh, and we'd like to be able to bring in an extra vessel. Now, time will tell whether we can do that. But that's one of the issues that we have in the system right now, which is we don't have relief ships at the peak seasons that we run. So from June to September or October, we just don't have the capacity. We're not like Air Canada where you can just roll in another 737 into, you know, into, into a gate when, when, one, when one plane goes down. We, that's not our system, and that's the system that we need to build too. So clearly, that's something that we're looking for in the future. All right, Nicholas Jimenez. We'll leave it there for today, but I really do appreciate you making the time for the show. Thank you. For sure. Thanks for the call. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till three on nine eighty CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, Jill at CKNW.com. Thanks again for listening.